Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Dr. Leon Aaron, who's been a senior fellow with us here at AEI since 1992. He studies Russian domestic and foreign policy, U.S.-Russia relations, and the economic, social, and cultural aspects of Russia's post-Soviet evolution. He's currently working on his latest book on the ideals, beliefs, and domestic political imperatives that shape Putin's foreign policy. From 2014 to 2020, Dr. Aaron was a governor on the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which oversees the operations of several international broadcasting outlets. Dr. Aaron is also the author of two books on the Russian Revolution and a biography of Boris Yeltsin. Thanks for joining Banter, Dr. Aaron. I'm glad to be here, Phoebe. Dr. Leon Aaron, it's great to have you with us. You are one of my, I've known you since I first came to AI. When, when I first came to AI, the World Cup was going on, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. And I was into the World Cup. I know I look like, you know, your typical pasty American, but I did love soccer because of my children. And I was insisting that we put it on somewhere so we could all watch it. And the only other scholar of any significance <laughs> that was on my side was Leon Aaron. Wow. He was into it, too. And we watched it together and we became friends right there, right from the start. Wow. And uh, it was a nice combination. Which reminds me, Leon, we're going to get into Ukraine and Russia quickly, uh, but I just wanted you to just tell our audience, how is it that you left Russia and came to the United States? How, how did that happen? Well, it was in the late 70s, and um, I was um, I just graduated college. And, uh, you know, I was in, in the circles that, that, you know, were close to um, uh, dissidents and... and, uh, and uh, uh, so-called refuseniks, if, if our audience still remembers that name, it's for people who applied to immigrate um, but were uh, refused the exit visas. Um, however, not too close enough um, for, for the KGB to do anything to me. Um, but through all of this, and of course uh, through reading um, Grossman and Solzhenitsyn, um, I just completely despaired in, 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 in my ability to to live a, a, a normal, honorable life in the Soviet Union of the 1970s. Um, and, uh, and I applied to immigrate. And I drew a good, <laughs> a lucky ticket because, of course, you know, the options were they allow you to immigrate or they arrest you or they um, uh, blackball you for, for any kind of job. Um, that you could get, but but I was lucky. I was just you know one of those who you know the party didn't need uh, yet another uh, specialist in in uh, um, literature and, and English philology. Um, you know I could not make tanks or bombs, and uh, I could not help them um, defend the motherland. So somehow I I was allowed to leave. Well, there you go. Their loss is our gain, mm-hmm. uh, and. <laughs> Um, now you are a uh, your principal work is is you know a great uh, history of Yeltsin and study of him. You've been doing a lot of writing and talking about uh, Putin, um, and then there you know I just happened to see on TV recently some old clips of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, and I was just would ask you, uh, uh, you know those are three different kinds of leaders. Russia doesn't always need to have an autocrat like Putin. Could you just give us a a sort of description of the differences and 
and similarities between those three Russian leaders? Well, it's a it's a fascinating uh, uh, issue, Robert, and, and we, we we could maybe devote three more podcasts to um, to the details. But um, the long and the short of it is this: um, Gorbachev belongs to that increasingly rare um, uh, breed of um, non-totalitarian socialists or 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 democ- demo- democrats, um, democratic socialists. Uh, we hear, we hear this we hear this label we see it, uh, but for the most part, when you peel it off, they're they're really not particularly democratic. Um, in Gorbachev's case, um, two things happened. He believed in socialism with a human face. If you still remember Alexander Dubček from from the Prague Spring, with, which Russia, of course, um, um, crushed with with the tanks in August of '68. But he did believe that 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 as a as a goal for the society. Socialism is good, but it has to be <laughs> cleansed of Stalinism and cleansed of repression and cleansed of censorship. Um, so that's Gorbachev for you. Um, as to um, Yeltsin, um, a complex figure. Um, he, he, of course, was a party apparatchik par excellence. Uh, Gorbachev made him uh, the first secretary of the uh, Moscow um, uh, City Communist Party, which was which was you know the largest, uh, single largest um, party organization in the Soviet Union. Uh, but the interesting thing about um, Yeltsin is that unlike Gorbachev, he just did those things by instinct. In other words, he was not a particularly you know well-educated theorist of socialism. Um, he was the son of a of a Ural peasant. But what's, but what's interesting um, about him is that maybe precisely, you know, in my book, I was trying to figure out how is it that he was essentially reborn. He remade himself from a party apparatchik into, a, um, into the person who, who, you know, destroyed the Soviet Union or, or if, 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 you, if you wish, uh, the one who um, built um, a new Russia. And, uh, and one of the... One of the things is geography. Um, he does come from um, Siberia Urals, and this is a peculiar area in um, in Russia. Um, there was no serfdom there, and so so the those peasants who had enough initiative and enough physical stamina to run away from central and southern Russia, a lot of them settled um, in the Urals. Um, and, and, and Siberia. And under Peter the Great, they started developing this, you know, um, uh, because of the iron uh, ore there, um, they started developing um, essentially factories for, for producing weapons, heavy weapons for, for Russia. And again, um, that's, that's under Peter the Great. Um, but the interesting thing is that I, 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 I um, traced the um, several uh, party chiefs um, in the Urals. Uh, at that time, the, the city was called Sverdlovsk. Now it's called back to its Russian name of Yekaterinburg. And even the party bosses, of whom Yeltsin was one before Gorbachev um, called him to Moscow, even they were slightly more independent, slightly, I don't want to say liberal, but at least with some respect, uh, for 
for people around them, for their opinions, uh, for for they 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 generally tried not to resort much as those in central Russia and southern Russia. Um, so Yeltsin, uh, I think it was an incredibly steep um, learning curve when he when he um, uh, arrived to Moscow um, and and realized what's going on. And then, of course, Gorbachev drummed him out of the Politburo um, for speaking up at the party uh, session. Um, there were rumors that, that Yeltsin even tried to commit suicide. I haven't found that um, in, in, during my research for the book. But he, within three or four years, he came from what's known as a liberal, liberal you know, communist in the context, of course, um, the, the uh, Soviet uh, communist party to somebody who began to, you know, who just actively started hating uh, the system. Now, as to Putin, um, the book that I'm writing now, um, I will, I will, in that, I'll, there's, there's the first chapter where I described him. Um, he himself called, he was pretty open. He called himself a typical product of the Soviet uh, upbringing. And of course, he memorably and, and famously said in 2005 that the destruction of the Soviet Union, or the fall of the Soviet Union, was uh, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, he, in part, was or has been that successful, not only because of the repression and propaganda, but because he tapped into some deep, uh, for the want of the better word, reservoirs of, of, of post-Soviet psyche. And that is one of which is that um, we used to be equal with the United States. We used to be another, the other superpower. Uh, we used to essentially divide the world with the United States. And look at us now. Um, nobody listens to us. Nobody does, you know, pays any attention to us. And Putin systematically began to uh, make sure that, that Russia uh, is back um, in, in, in the news. Now, in Putin's case, of course, because of his KGB education um, and, and uh, job, uh, Russia's greatness is equated with the fear it inspires. Again, th there's nothing new here. This is, this is more or less um, a Russian tradition. Um, but that's, uh, uh, that is something that, that Putin set up to do. Um, and one, one thing, if you want sort of a very broad um, uh, uh, description of Putin's agenda, I think it could be put in one sentence. He is out to recover for his Russia um, economic, um, political, and geopolitical assets that were lost in the Soviet collapse. And he started doing it from the very beginning, and he started doing it very systematically, and pretty much this brings us to Ukraine. Well, so if that's true, then, then, then it, you know, you, maybe you are uh, thinking that he might decide that if that's his goal, to send those 100,000 troops across the border into Ukraine. Um, Robert, I think um, that that he 
he's increasingly, um, um, of course, uh, a risk taker. Um, and and I have nightmarish scenarios, which some of which I'll put in my book in the um, towards the end. But I think he is not crazy. He does cause benefit analysis. And what he wants from Ukraine is for Ukraine to stay, if not a failed state, then a bleeding state, a state that's perennially uh, um, uh, unstable, both economically and politically. For that, he does not need he does not need to send troops in. He's he. It's already there, um, and and besides, um, he you know not only he took Crimea, but he also um, established essentially a Russian enclave, a Russian protectorate, on a big chunk of Ukrainian territory. Um, it is supplied by Russia, armed by Russia, trained by Russia, but known in Western media as pro-Russian rebels. If he wants to to restart a war, it's a, it's a 10-second phone call. He does not need to go in with 100,000 troops. And the other reason, of course, is technical. Um, he surely will bomb um, the Ukrainian army um, out of existence very quickly, but then he has to hold the territory that, um, that he will grab. And unlike Crimea, where 80% were Russians, um, vehemently pro-Russian and wanting to join Russia, um, Ukrainians are going to resist um, uh, fiercely. And then he's facing a guerrilla war. Um, and the Russians, you know, very quickly, um, domestically, this thing is going to go sour because they like Putin when he wins quickly mm-hmm. um, and decisively, as in Crimea, Donbass, or Syria. And they would not stand for any protracted conflict because, the, among other things, the memory of Afghanistan is still very fresh. So I, I, I think Walter Russell Mead wrote something, indicated that he thought that the Biden administration's response um, had been insufficiently strong. Uh, do you agree? Do you think that the Biden administration should do something else to show our resolve? Uh, in opposing a Russian invasion to Ukraine, or or would that be too provocative? Well, uh, two things, Robert. Uh, first, I would not have um, reacted to to Putin's massing the massing of the troops on the Ukrainian border. Um, I think the response should have been about two levels below three, maybe uh, the White House, um, maybe from the Pentagon spokesperson or 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 the State Department spokesperson, who would simply have said, um, would have said something like, um, you know, of course we're watching with concern, but, but President Putin is telling us that this is um, purely a domestic political, um, I'm sorry, military exercise, um, and we trust him on this. And uh, we will continue to watch the situation, of course, um, but it's, it's, uh, it is within Russia's rights to conduct military exercises on its territory. So that, that was the first mistake. Um, instead, goodness, there was just a, a flurry of uh, top-level contacts. Biden calls him, they schedule the summit, and the Secretary of State rushes to Vienna to um, uh, conduct negotiations. So, so this was a, a huge uh, uh, 
tactical error, although from Putin's point of view, this was a big strategic gain because, again, going back to the Soviet Union... Um, makes them the center of attention. They're all of a sudden... Correct. Everybody in the world Correct. is talking about them. The world is talking about them. Russians, there's only one country, and that's America. Um, and, and being on an equal footing with the American president um, gives um, any Russian leader, like I said, it's, it started well before, before uh, Putin, an enormous domestic political boost, which was one of the, one of the purposes um, of this exercise. Now that we are where we are, um, uh, needs question as to what, 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 what is to be done. Um, now, before you get to that, I just want to ask one follow-up yeah. question. We had a conversation uh, last week in which we heard a prominent uh, Biden administration official say to you and me that they were alumni or veterans of the Obama administration's response to the invasion of Crimea. And they, the Biden people now, are determined not to make that same mistake again and allow Putin to get away with that. How did you respond? What did you think when you heard that? Did you think that was a true? And do you well, think that's the right way to see things? Well, uh, my first reaction, uh, Robert, was better late than never. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, okay, finally, yes, it was a totally inadequate response. Um, the, the, the long and the short of it is that, is that uh, because it's, it's because of the domestic roots of, of this entire policy. Putin's major audience is not the Ukrainians, not NATO, not Biden, but his domestic uh, political audience where, you know, between COVID and Omicron and, and, and economic stagnation, very few things go for him except for um, this uh, brinkmanship with, with the United States. So, so, to permanently solve this problem, I'm afraid, you know, Putin, Putin will have to leave the Kremlin, which may not, may not happen in the next uh, 16 years. Um, the only thing that would – sanctions don't work. I mean, I'm all for sanctions as an expression of moral outrage, of course. But the two, the two key sanctions that may have um, uh, had uh, any impact on Putin is the – uh, banning Russia from SWIFT, which is um, a world financial um, accounting system, uh, so that, that the Russians could not use their credit cards. Um, and secondly, ban on Russian oil and gas. Neither of these are going to happen. And in fact, we already telegraphed that we're not doing this. So beyond that, the only deterrence is um, um, the deployment of enough troops, enough materiel, um, in the uh, borderline states, the Baltic states, the three Baltic states, and Poland, which, which this, the four of them are, are the most vulnerable um, to, to Putin's attack. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, this will not happen because we would need, uh, by the Rand Corporation um, uh, war game, we need at least eight brigades with air cover, with um, surface-to-air missiles, um, we now have four battalions um, in Poland and four, about 4,000 people um, in Poland and the three Baltic republics. So unfortunately, that too will never happen. The, the, the NATO will never deploy that amount of, of uh, uh, 
troops and, uh, and uh, technology in those areas. So as I, as I mentioned in the, in the, in the recent article, um, get used to it. I mean, he will be doing it periodically. He will be doing it at different, different times in different places. But, but perhaps we will learn that, uh, that he will, uh, you know, unless, unless he, he plans to, and, and, and that may be closer to his re-election in 2024, um, he, uh, he's unlikely to start a hot war. Um, it is largely bluffing and blackmail. I wanted to go back to a point that you made about um, Putin's domestic audience. So do you think that, because I think one of the themes in your writing has always been that you can't understand Putin's foreign policy without understanding his domestic standing um, and the audience that he's playing to in Russia. So do you think that if economic conditions continue to get worse in Russia, as he is thinking ahead to 2024, if that pressure ratchets up domestically, that that could um, cause him to escalate by lashing out um, and taking more drastic action in Ukraine. Absolutely, Phoebe. That's exactly right. Uh, Russia's um, between between um, 2011 to 2019 uh, was in the worst uh, and longest uh, stagnation in its modern history. Uh, on average, it grew 1%. Uh, and the average Russian is bringing today uh, adjusted for inflation um, less uh, money in his paycheck or her paycheck than they did in 2013. Um, the, uh, the reasons for that are structural. And in fact, some of Putin's closest friends and um, prominent economists in, 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 in and outside the government pointed out to them, you know, there is... There's no protection uh, to property rights. Um, the, the courts are back to the Soviet days. They're either for sale or, or they're guided by a phone call. The Russians call it uh, the phone law from the governor, the mayor, the Kremlin administration. Um, it, the investment is down. The money flight continues, um, money flight out of Russia. Um, you, you know, you... You, frankly, you have to be crazy uh, to start a profitable business now in Russia mm -hmm. because uh, either, either your mayor or your governor or the head of the local FSB at some point will come to you. It's, it's a nationwide racket and ask for a share. And if you don't give him a share, you'll go to jail. Um, there are several hundred thousand entrepreneurs that are in jail uh, in Russia today. Um, and, and another issue, and that's actually different from probably partly in response to the contrast that, um, that Robert asked me to outline between uh, Putin and Yeltsin. Yes, under Yeltsin it was chaotic, but under Yeltsin, thousands and thousands of new businesses um, cropped up. Now, um, two-thirds of, of, of the Russian economy is back in the, in the hands of state, and the other, the other uh, um, third is controlled by the state. In other words, uh, as somebody said, the oligarchs, uh, large entrepreneurs, um, are essentially told, you, you don't own it. Um, you, you manage it on, on behalf of the state. And so long as we're happy with you, um, so long as you pay your um, uh, contributions, uh, or so long as you have you know, uh, local uh, political elite fed, uh, fine, we'll let you run your business 
but but God help you if you step out of that uh, or or break that unspoken agreement. Mm-hmm. So so the investment is low. Um, uh, the country continues, despite Putin's pledges, continues to be essentially an oil and gas uh, exporter. It, 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 uh, the revenues from from energy are 50% of the Russian federal budget, and you know all of those all of those things that you know. And of course, the media media are controlled, and therefore you ca- you can't have this any kind of cleansing effect on on the local officials and business. Um, and so and so. Um, we are looking by every uh, um, uh, forecast that I saw, whether the IMF, World Bank, or the Russian uh, Russian own, uh, own forecast, um, we see something. Again, that stagnation essentially continuing. And you're absolutely right. I think closer, the closer we get to the most important date for Putin, which is March 2024 where at the age of 72, he will embark, in essence, um, on the presidency for life. It's, it's a six-year term, and then another six-year term. term. Um, how to assure that that happens without mass protests mm-hmm. is the key goal. And I'm afraid that these kinds of militarized dramas um, will become more and more intense, um, and, and the brinksmanship, uh, more, uh, you know, riskier and riskier as we're approaching that date. We started this conversation with you talking about refuseniks and um, sort of Russia or the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And of course, a lot has changed since then. But the way you're talking uh, within Russia proper, um, maybe not so much. And the question is, is there a viable dissident community in Russia now? Is it is it less uh, numerous and less uh, powerful, or po- is its potential less than it was in the old Soviet Union, uh, uh, or is it stronger? Well, um, it, there is there is still um, um, internet, um, and that makes them, of course, much stronger. Um, there are more of them. Um, the the if you look at the public opinion polls um, about. You know, 10 to 12 percent of the people. Well, out of 140 million, that's not that's not that that little. Um, it hate Putin. And as we all know, uh, the revolutions never start by the majority. They always start by by a very tiny minority. And the real question of the revolution is not how many how many people are for the overthrow of the regime, but how many people get out and defend that regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the polls here. Um, I just in front of me there is a, um, a a poll from the only independent um, Russian uh, survey company called the Levada Center, um, which is which is still um, excellent. Um, about 42% of the people that's the from the November poll of last year uh, do not want Putin to be president after 2024. Um, so so. Th- th- there is there is clearly a sense um, of uh, yeah something to be afraid of something to be afraid of something to something to you know um, and of course you know in the Soviet Union a um, you risked much more uh, by speaking uh, uh, you know against the regime and there was no internet so so there's a there's a very important factor of self awareness 
the problem with the with, with the Soviet dissidents, I remember distinctly, um, was that, yeah, I'm I hate this regime, but I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or you know, no, I, I have a couple of friends. But here you have a community. So in that sense, of course, the opposition is is much stronger um, than um, than it was in the Soviet days. At the same time, uh, Putin is uh, really uh, cracking down. Um, Alexei Navalny, who is a recognized leader of the pro-democracy opposition, is in jail. Um, lots of people are in exile. Uh, his organization um, is decimated by, by long um, uh, prison terms. Um, Putin, in 2012, so we're approaching the 10th anniversary, invented the so-called foreign agent law, um, which, to which essentially anybody you know, anybody could be declared a foreign agent. Um, and therefore, first, you have to pay a huge fine. And then they, you know, uh, they'll find some technical violation and they close your organization, just as happened with the um, 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 famous um, and, uh, and uh, storied organization called Memorial, uh, which track, tracked political repression both in Russia today and um, provided historical research on, on Stalinist repressions. So, so uh, yes, in one sense, um, they're better off, of course, than, than um, the Soviet dissidents were. But at the same time, um, they are dispirited. They are, um, their ranks are, are, are emptied. They're decimated. Um, and they themselves, by themselves, do not, do not represent um, a, a threat to Putin. What he is afraid of, going back to what we just discussed, mm-hmm. is a combination of some severe economic dislocation, um, and and uh, perhaps, and this is this is where the, the paradox is, um, in Russian history, foreign policy or 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 war um, uh, uh, defeats um, led to uh, revolutions. That happened in after the Crimean War, 1856-59. Um, the war with Japan led to the first Russian Revolution, 1905, and of course uh, the setbacks in World War II led or contributed. World War One. Uh, February... Yes, World War One. Exactly. Thank you. Um, contributed to um, to first the February Revolution um, and the uh, abdication of Nicholas II, and then of course the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, all the more important, Robert, for the West to show that Putin is risking something like this. That's the only thing that may prevent him from, from uh, um, you know, escalating these types of military exercises uh, and, and threats. The problem is, like I said, uh, NATO cannot bring itself to spend uh, 2% um, of, of most of the countries. They require 2% of their GDP on defense. And as you said, uh, I, I assure you that Germany and France, for one, would say, oh, no, 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 no. Deploying these types of uh, forces, that type of a footprint of that size, is going to provoke Putin. So we can do it. Um, so overall, um, I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic. So, I, you know, I was... Uh... When I uh, preparing for this, I was I, I took out my map of 
Eastern Europe, and I, I reminded myself of, of where Stettin in the north is and Trieste in the south. Uh, and it's a long way from the Russian border. I mean, what <laughs> Churchill said was that the Iron Curtain had descended across, and behind it lay all the ancient states of Eastern Europe. And, um, and, and then that occurred to me, was he think, would, would he have counted Ukraine as one of those ancient states of Eastern Europe or Belarus? Uh, or would he, he have been satisfied with the Baltic states and Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary? Um, it, it, almost certainly, uh, Robert, he did not um, uh, count. Uh, Ukraine and Belarus for a simple reason that they had not been states. Yeah. Uh, they they don't have a, a history of statehood. Um, unfortunately for them, both of them, and that's that's what Putin stresses again and again and again, are you know looked at as sort of <laughs> uh, you know largely Russian. But you don't look at them that of way. The language. Uh, no more. No more. And you know, the paradox of it and, uh, is that Putin created a Ukrainian nation. In other words, yes, they, they formally became independent like other post-Soviet states in 91, but, but continued to be very, very close to Russia. Uh, but uh, they, you know, not, nothing, nothing, creates, nothing creates a sense of nationhood as being inva- invaded, yeah. uh, as being... <laughs> As being as being abused, and uh, and uh, you know, just from the Ukrainian traffic um, on 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 my screen, and and, and of course Russian analysts, um, it's obvious that that's it. Uh, much as Putin keeps saying that we are the same people, um, no Ukrainians are back are not going to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the other states, um, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Uh, and of course, uh, Robert, we know from history, these are ancient European states. Of course, Czechoslovakia was created after World War One, but, but, you know, Bohemia, right. Um, and, and those lands were always part um, of, um, you know, just remember Mozart, for example. They were always part um, of, of um, Europe. And, and so, so for Churchill, um, I think he had them in mind um, because they were, they had been there for centuries. Maybe under different uh, names, under different kingdoms. You know, from the Holy Roman Empire to Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburgs. But they were always there. And also another factor, Robert, which is uh, very important, although we, we don't talk about this anymore, is religion. Um, the the uh, both Belarusians and Ukrainians, as are Russians, are Russian Orthodox. Um, the other countries that you mentioned are, are fervent Catholics um, or Protestants, uh, like the Baltic states. So, so that too, I think, makes them more European, as it were, uh, makes them, um, you know, uh, look like they are the states that were always part of Europe, then were conquered first by Hitler, then Stalin, uh, but then they're back. But there is a risk for the people in the West to, to take my line and, and your description of the history and say, well, you know, I guess Ukraine isn't as big a deal, but we'll, we'll hold the line when it gets to Poland or the Baltic states. And I think you're saying that that's, 
probably a mistake. Yeah, that's that's a bit myopic. Um, uh, and and but I'm afraid, Robert, that in their heart of hearts, uh, that's exactly what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, will make a stand in Poland, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia, but Ukraine. Uh, you know, it's too big. It's too chaotic. It 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 it, it has had, you know, it hasn't really had many many links to either cultural or linguistic or religious um, to what we called Europe. Um, and uh, yes, <laughs> it's unfortunate that they're they are where they are, but but there's only so much as we can do. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, one last question about Ukraine, but they are different than they were five years ago. I mean, they, I've noticed in the coverage of this particular crisis that there's been a lot of talk about how Ukraine is not as much a failed state and an embarrassment and corrupt as it was five or ten years ago. Do you buy that? that no, that, that's absolutely true. Um, they're evolving. Um, they are, most importantly, most importantly, um, uh, Robert, they, they they hold elections yeah. and they actually yeah. and they actually uh, uh, throw out uh, the previous leader. You know, I always compare the situation uh, to Magna Carta. Uh, it, it, it is not it is not fashionable or politically correct in in this in this wonderful republic of ours to say this. But the more I look at the history of post-communism, the more I realize that if oligarchs are free. Like, like the barons of, of Magna Carta. For those countries where the oligarchs are free, um, there is hope that it will eventually trickle down, exactly like it did in Britain, that their freedoms uh, will, will trickle down to the people. Um, and, and all those revolutions um, in, in Ukraine um, occurred for a simple reason, that the television is in private hands. Uh, unlike unlike uh, Russia, yeah. um, where Putin's first order of the day uh, in his first three years is to get rid of the so-called oligarchs or tame them. And they are tamed, the ones who stayed. Most of them sold out and moved out. But but that's that's the key difference between uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Hmm. Hmm. As this continues to unfold and it's kind of changing by the day, are there any things that you're watching for that if you saw develop, you would say, okay, this is no longer posturing. This is now reaching a level at which we should be very concerned. Like, what what would you be watching for? Well, you know, Phoebe, uh, not a day passes without a new map, either in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or somewhere on the web, those those scary satellite photos showing how the Russians are shuffling around uh, their troops. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't need any uh, additional uh, proof. They are deployed in a way that that would allow them to um, attack. Uh, you know, j- just you know, moving moving a missile um, a system here from there, or or a battalion of of I don't know uh, uh, heavy artillery from from this a battery of heavy artillery from from this place to a place two kilometers uh, down. Mm-hmm. That does not does not make uh, much difference. They are deployed uh, in a way that would allow them to invade on a very short notice. 
but my sense is that, uh, and again, I think it's always the case, uh, we just tend to forget it, that, that, the, that the, the actual attack is not, uh, is not a product or a consequence of, of, of the troop deployment, but, but the political calculus uh, by those who command them. Right. And, and my sense is that by that calculus, um, uh, Putin will refrain from, from an attack. Um, have you seen the Kremlin messaging about Ukraine to Russians change? And would you consider that to be maybe a, a precursor? Uh, have I seen a, a Russian messaging to Ukraine? No, to Russians uh, about Ukraine. Oh, to Russians about Ukraine. Yeah. Well, uh, Phoebe, that message hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, again, I wish, I wish our media... Uh, 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 mentioned it, yeah. uh, or, or, or mentioned it more often. To the Russians, uh, it's an entirely different picture. Uh, Putin says, I'm here to defend you from a Ukrainian attack, um, either on the Donbass, you know, Russian, ethnic Russian enclave, or Crimea, or perhaps Russia itself. I'm here to defend you. An aggressive Ukraine, egged on, and armed by NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the story. That's the narrative inside the country. Yeah. Um, and and when when Putin um, during his multi- can I just stop you there, Leon. How yeah. how is it that that I mean I I can't believe that the average Russian on the street in Moscow doesn't recognize that that's just ludicrous. I mean that the Ukraine <laughs> would invade Russia. That 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 the real threat here is the is a. Uh, avaricious, aggressive NATO invading Russia. Do they really believe that? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Putin constituents, older people, uh, blue collar, uh, those who uh, 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 have, uh, you know, nostalgia for the Soviet days, and there are millions and millions of them, do believe that. And and it's a it's a it's a very interesting question. There have been a number of good books uh, written on how this propaganda works. The, the, the younger ones, and that those 12 to 14 percent I mentioned before, um, who hate Putin, of course they don't believe it. They're heavy consumers of the internet. The rest of them watch TV, and the TV is completely monopolized. There, there, there's not a single um, national uh, channel that essentially does not read from the script uh, that the Kremlin gives them. And that started essentially with Putin's third presidency, 2012, um, that we're surrounded by enemies. I'm here to defend you. um, And and, uh, don't worry about it so long as I'm at helm. This, incidentally, is the key to his popularity, which is the same as his regime's legitimacy, which is otherwise very unpopular. So, so, um, yes, it's very strange uh, to us, mm-hmm. but uh, again, I, I don't want to sound like a like a crazy alarmist. But remember, uh, Robert, there was a much I don't want to again use a politically politically incorrect term. So so there was there was a country, uh, a, a nation, European uh, uh, nation, uh, the largest country in in uh, Western and East and and, and Central Europe. Uh, that in mid-30s indoctrinated far better educated people than the Russians uh, to the idea that, uh, that uh, the rest of the world is about to attack them. Uh, 
that the, the Jews and Anglo-Saxon oligarchs are out to get them. And uh, millions upon millions believe that man. Um, so so um, it, there are unfortunately precedents for this. You know, Putin, Putin wrote uh, last summer a, a historically extremely dubious, half-fantastic article about the history of Ukraine. And there he said exactly what you're saying. They are always part of Russia. They're slightly different, but, but we're the same people. But what he says now is, 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 uh, is this. They are our brethren. But the leadership, the leadership is sold out to the Americans, and the leadership controls the army. And the tragedy is that they're going to start a fratricidal war. That is the message. I got it. Okay. Leon, thank you for taking time to educate us, as you do every day here at AI. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you. Th- thank you very much, Robert, for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Phoebe. Please stay tuned to hear a message from Chris Scalia in AEI's Academic Programs Department. Hello. My name's Christopher Scalia. I'm Director of Academic Programs at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes spend a week studying policy with top scholars, participating in wide-ranging conversations with other students from various backgrounds, and learning about policy careers in Washington, D.C. This year's Summer Honors Program offers 16 week-long courses covering foreign and defense policy, domestic policy, economics, the law, and political science. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars, as well as distinguished college professors. This year's instructors include AEI's Yuval Levin, Corey Shockey, Michael Strain, James Capretta, Tim Carney, Brent Orell, Angela Rashidi, Michael Rubin, and John Yu. Six of the courses are offered through AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life and will integrate Christian faith, theology, and ethics into discussions about economics, public policy, and society. And did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs and provide lodging, meals, and we offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know a college student who fits that bill, I encourage you to take a look at our full list of courses and instructors and to learn more about this opportunity by visiting our website. Just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. The final deadline for applications is March 1st, 2022. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.